This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Malicious software, or malware, can harm your computer in a variety of ways. And sometimes the effects are not known until it's too late. What's worse, your computer can become one of many infected with malware, creating a botnet, short for robot and network. Cyber criminals use special malware, usually a Trojan horse, to breach the security of several users' computers. These take control of each computer and organize all of the infected machines into a network of bots, which are unwitting tools that the cyber criminal can remotely manage. The infected system may act completely normal with no warning signs. A bot can be a PC, Mac, or even a smartphone. Oftentimes, the cyber criminal will seek to infect and control thousands, tens of thousands, or even millions of computers so that they can act as the master of a large zombie network or bot network. These botnets are capable of delivering many different types of cyber crimes, such as DDoS attacks, spreading malware, online fraud, and wide-scale spam or phishing campaigns. The Canadian technology community has a long history of working together with government and regulators to counter online harms such as botnet, spam, and malicious hacking. It therefore came as a surprise when the CRTC launched a consultation on addressing botnets that raised the possibility of the regulators stepping in with new blocking mandates. The consultation just completed its first round of comments, and in addition to industry experts, there were others that opportunistically looked at the blocking discussion as the chance to promote copyright-related blocking or other internet blocking requirements. Jonathan Curtis has been at the heart of battling botnets and online harms for decades, with work at Bell, the CRTC, and other leading security companies. He joins me on the podcast in a personal capacity to place the online security challenges in historical context and to outline both the benefits and risks that come from the potential blocking approaches raised by the CRTC. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, I'm really pleased that you can join us. I, I typically have had uh, primarily legal and uh, regulatory people on. So to have someone who comes from the security space to talk about these issues from a security perspective, but which invoke considerable number of policy uh, issues and policy implications, I think is really great. Now, you've been in the security space for decades in Canada, working for leading telecom companies, security companies, and regulators. Now, you're joining the podcast in a personal personal capacity, representing only your own views, but can you start us off with a little bit of a background on your experience and past work? Sure. Um, well, thanks again. It's my pleasure to uh, to speak to you today, uh, Michael. Um, so, you know, in uh, 1995, I started off with uh, Bell Simpatico. It was actually called Navigo at the time. And we, uh, as engineers, we kind of uh, built out that uh, service over the course of the next, I guess I was there 14 years, and accountable for uh, email, anti-spam, uh, internet safety and security, and uh, during my time at Bell Canada, I managed to, to build a few nonprofits to fight uh, spam, uh, notably uh, the messaging uh, malware and mobile uh, anti-abuse working group. It's an international con- um, organization, nonprofit, uh, comprised of all the 
leading social networks, telecom, uh, email service providers, ISPs, et cetera, and with a common goal of uh, restoring trust in the consumer, but also protecting that same consumer. Uh, I moved from Bell in 2008. I took a job uh, in California with a DNS vendor uh, that was supplying about 40% of the world's telecoms with DNS uh, services and have an application that would support that, and uh, wrote, a, um, wrote a product or built a product that um, would block malicious domains. And then, uh, you know, after, I guess, 300,000 miles a year in a plane, I decided uh, I'd step back. Uh, I had helped a little bit with uh, the early days of Castle and, uh, and wanted to come back home uh, to Ottawa and, uh, and work more closely to my family and um, and the CRTC had some some roles and uh, worked with them uh, for about four years uh, implementing Castle bringing it into force helping with uh, some of the regulatory uh, the regs um, the regulations and uh, of course the spam reporting center was something I, I put into place so back in 2012 and 13 and then when it was launched in 14. Uh, I um, felt I had done a fair bit with the CRTC, did a little bit on the telecom side there as well, um, and um, to help uh, uh, track down, you know, malicious uh, callers uh, to elderly people um, in the country. So uh, from there, I went back uh, to my roots in uh, California and uh, worked for some threat intel companies and uh um, now been, I guess, five years with a company by the name of Securonix. Again, I don't, I don't represent their view. These are my views, but, uh, that's kind of, uh, how I spent the last, I guess, 25 years. Well, thanks for the work that you've done. And uh, it's been a really interesting career that's, that's put you at the center of, of some really important issues. Uh, you noted spam, but it's, there's been a number of issues, other issues as well. Uh, one of the issues that, that has been getting more and more attention of late has to do with internet blocking. Um, it's been a policy issue for some time. Debates about copyright-related blocking certainly were or at the took center stage a number of years ago. Those copyright blocking debates are back. We are also like to see uh, online harms legislation that could include demand to block some sites. And the CRTC has opened the door to botnet blocking as part of a somewhat surprising consultation that they launched. Um, when I tend to think, uh, I, I tend to think about the legal evolution on this issue, but uh, can you walk us through a little bit the security policy related history of blocking sure. in Canada? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not, uh, heavily broadcasted, although, uh, some of the companies I worked with, they, they would, they would put some hints in the, um, annual reports and, uh, and, um, and, and so, uh, some of the things we, we had done in the past, like in 1996, for example, uh, you know, internet news was getting blasted by spam, um, and so we put some products in place to just drop, you know, about 90% or 80%, uh, give or take a few points there, but uh, a, a huge amount of spam that was coming into internet news. Now, internet news is sort of a, a closet kind of application um, that, that really hasn't had mainstream attention. But email, uh, certainly in 1998, when we were uh, being overloaded with spam at that point, had to put in provisions in place to 
uh, first sideline messages, and then users could go and look at the spam that they didn't really want to get. And then we kind of morphed that into, uh, you know, deleting the message um, or deleting messages from certain IP addresses. So blocking content, if you will, whether it was from a domain or an IP address. And we're going to talk more on those two technologies and some protocol technologies in a minute. But you know, there was, in 98, it was, you know, 30, 40%. By 2000, it had, be, it had grown to, you know, 80, 90% of all email was spam. Uh, you know, 2002, uh, network worms were born. And, you know, basically this is where you could just become infected by plugging into the network um, because of some weak security uh, behind some applications. More, most specifically, the, you know, TCP uh, port 135 through 139. Uh, there, there was quite a, a an outbreak of uh, m- malicious software through that, and so we, as ISPs, we band together and would we ended up blocking those protocols. And those are, those are still in place today. A lot of what I'm going to talk about is still in play today. I'll, I'll uh, differentiate if it, if it's different, if it is, you know, has changed or, or morphed into something else. But so that's you know permanent blocks almost 20 years ago um, because of botnet because of malware. Uh, and then um, in about 2003, that's when we formed MOG uh, and then started writing practices for other ISPs around the world to, you know, block those ports, worked with uh, vendors in the space, Microsoft, uh, most notably, um, to uh, ensure we had, you know, the, the right protocols, the right pieces of the puzzle in place to help protect those vulnerable applications. We went ahead and blocked port 25 as well for outbound uh, email to uh, to the internet, so you'd have to use your ISP's email, or you'd have to authenticate to an email server on a on another protocol on another port, a secure port. So uh, we we pushed those standards forward in in the early two thousands. Uh, we wrote best practices around this uh, and spread the word through Mog and and other organizations like the OECD um, and the London Action Plan and, and whatnot. Um, and then uh, lo and behold, in two thousand six, I met with. Uh, British Telecom, and they had developed a system around blocking uh, illegal images of children uh, being exploited on the internet. And this was kind of a no-brainer, um, you know, whereby uh, to view the contents illegal, to share the contents illegal, to distribute any anything to do with child exploitation is illegal in this country. And so um, that was a clear differentiator around um wanting to move ahead with this. And there was a number of, um, you know, uh, uh, public policy practices that we looked at as well in terms of having an ombudsman like a cybertip.ca, um, having a vetted list that, you know, you don't end up with overblocking very specific technology around blocking URLs and not even blocking by domain or IP address for that matter. Um, so, um, and it was all um, under the premise that, it was unintentional access and that therefore we would just delete any logs and uh, that system's still in place today. And, um, you know, I think um, it's a true testament to putting in a system, a voluntary system to allow ISPs to, to work together. I mean, that, that can, if you Google, you know, clean feed Canada, I think you wrote an article back then on it um, and that all the major ISPs, you know, work together on that. So fast forward a few years, and Industry Canada in 2013 created a best practice, security best practice with the telecom service providers uh, around um, mitigation of threats around, you know, 
core networking uh, items uh, such as hiding of the core um, network uh, routers and stuff like that so that they weren't easily identifiable and therefore you know you could create a denial service attack against them if you can't see them you can't hit them that kind of an idea and a number of other uh, critical security practices that are just common practice the FCC also published um, I think it was 2012 um, MOG had published a number of uh, updated practices with the London Action Plan in 2015 and then 2018, the uh, Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity uh, came about, and um, you know it's it's a a, a great centre uh, for a centre of excellence around um, tracking malware, sharing uh, government to from government to industry, uh, sharing that type of information in a timely fashion to help uh, mitigate threats. And then 2020, um, so the Canadian government has spent significant funding on on uh, what they call a, a public-private partnership, a triple P. And, and that's just one example of, of that. And I'll draw back on that as we carry forward here. But in 2020, Industry Canada went back and updated the practices from 2013. They didn't hit pause and, and you know, you know, put shelve a, a practice. You know, malware evolves. Uh, these groups, I know for a fact that Industry Canada, they, they, they meet with the telecoms on a regular basis to... to um, to work with not only telecoms but other critical infrastructure providers to ensure the you know the safety and well-being of Canada's critical infrastructure, right? So, which telecom is a part of? So that's kind of a, a, a history, and I think it's a you know 20, 25 year I guess history of voluntarily blocking bad stuff where it's possible for Canadians, right? You know, the CRTC consultation focuses on botnets. In a sense, you've the, the sense that I'm getting from, from your description of how this these issues have evolved is that I was going to ask, how has the security industry addressed the issue in the past before the CRTC comes along? And I think you've, in a sense, answered it. Uh, the industry has been actively working with government, sharing information to develop best practices that can that then gets implemented by the various companies is, is that is that a rough approximation about how things have been addressed yeah i mean where possible you know there's we're going to get into technology limitations around botnets and control i call them choke points uh for lack of a better term but really um yes that that's correct michael they they collaborate together um in a sort of a co-opetition if you will so you know if if your network's bad and you're close to my network you have a, a greater impact on my network because of proximity, right? The round trip of an attack is a lot shorter. You can do a lot more damage when you're in the same country um, against each other, you know? And that was part of the reason, actually, in 2002, we, we, you know, we started working with other ISPs in Canada to, you know, get them to adopt. Uh, and a lot of them were already adopting, but it was just sort of an awareness thing to, um, to go ahead and block some of these protocol-based um, you know, uh, vulnerabilities. And then of course with, you know, uh, phishing sites, you know, uh, sharing of IP addresses across, you know, uh, public domain around phishing sites to try to understand if, you know, you needed to block a phishing site. And then a lot of times it was just a takedown service that would need to be consulted because the battle isn't just about, you know, blocking a botnet, right? There's, there's so many more things that are going to happen, when uh, that that happen when these when these uh, when these miscreants go off and you know um, launch an attack, there's so many other 
components. There's the fish mail that came in, or there's, you know, the payload that came in, or there's, you know, the user has to click on a link. There's some other website that's not even part of the botnet command and control. There's, you know, uh, there's peer-to-peer networks. The CRTC identifies several different types of blocking efforts. They talk about IP address blocking, domain-based blocking, and then blocking similar to Project CleanFeed that you mentioned a few moments Mm ago. Uh, It would be great if we could sort of walk through each of those. Why don't we start with IP address blocking? Uh, How does it work? What are some of the advantages? And uh, I suppose notably, what are some of the risks? Sure. So, you know, uh, IP blocking um, in an IPv4 world where I think it's, and I I could be off by a few billion here, but I think it's about four four or eight billion IP address. I should know it off the top of my head. Um, But IPv6 is thousands and thousands of times more addresses uh, on the internet. Think of it as, you know, like if you had an unlimited amount of phone calls, you could go off and spoof as many as you want, but you could make phone calls from legitimate numbers and never run out of them. Well, that's IPv6, right? And IPv4, there's a finite number and it's tightly controlled and it's well known who owns what in, in, in most corners. And yes, you can do IP-based blocking, but in the core of a, a carrier network, there's limitations that you need to really pay attention to. And a lot of folks wouldn't understand this because they're not running you know, um, you know, ter- terabit network or gigabit networks uh, across, you know, a country, right? Uh, and so there are limitations within uh, BGP and within IP blocking. And, it, and we estimate that to be in the neighborhood. And I've spoken to a number of operators of this, and it's about 200,000 IP addresses, which, isn't, which has not changed a whole lot. There's been a, a certainly a technology evolution uh, in, in innovation, um, but it's still in that range of about 200,000 unique IP addresses. So, um, you know, it, it also can allow for, um, so it can give you some coverage, right? It's limited, but it can give you some coverage. It can give you, um, and I mean, I mean that like you could get like 5% coverage of malware or, or some small percentage, right? Um, you could, you could block an entire country using IP or BGP type blocking. You can block an entire company or an entire carrier that way. Um, and that, that actually has happened in the past. Uh, there's uh, some countries that have held, uh, they've had some questionable businesses that were over 95% or 100% malicious actors in that network. So, you know, carriers had taken some liberties in the late 90s and early 2000s, just blocked the entire company. Um, that's no longer a mainstay uh, because criminals have evolved their game, right? The other thing about IP blocking is it's relatively inexpensive to a large carrier. You know, to do the two hundred thousand, you can do it fairly, fairly uh, easily. Uh, you still need to manage it, though. You still need to go and do what's called collateral damage for every IP, so that um, you're not taking out like an Amazon uh, or a content distribution network or a critical voice over IP network or a streaming service. Or you know, uh, so you can't just like you know pick an IP address out of thin air and apply a block, you've, you've got to put some rigor behind it. And again, um, the, the miscreants are aware of this. So they're going to, they're more likely to use uh, an Amazon and I'm not, I'm just picking a hosting company. Uh, Amazon actually has quite good practices, but you could use an Amazon as an example where you've got one IP address in, in thousands of, of domains behind that IP. Um, and so therefore it's kind of a, a blunt instrument from that perspective. There's not a whole lot of precision and, the miscreants, they're aware of this. They'll change the IP address. They use threats that use millions of IP addresses. And so all of a sudden, the 200,000 doesn't seem like a whole lot of coverage, and it isn't. 
Um, so IP address is kind of frowned upon in terms of trying to use that because you got to upkeep it. It has a it has a very low percentage um, in terms of being efficient over time. Um, and it uh, causes a lot of collateral damage if you don't apply it correctly. You need an ombudsman either way. Uh, it's not well understood by smaller ISPs like wholesalers. Uh, you know, like the CRTC and, and Bell, and there's a whole, whole set of wholesale ISPs that are underneath that, right, that just sell bandwidth. It's not well understood by some of those. It's usually done um, behind the curtains and because you don't want the miscreants to know what you're doing. And so... Um, it's not, you know, announced to the subscriber. And if things all of a sudden stop, stop working, the first thing is, well, it must be that blocking thing that was in play when it, it probably was the application or something else. So anyways, it doesn't, doesn't really solve the problem. Um, it used to when malware was a lot simpler in the, you know, in like 2002 to 2005, six, uh, but peer to peer botnets came along and, um, Miscreants started using domains and fluctuating the uh, the IP address of a domain around, and then if the name servers of that uh, domain, they would fluctuate that around, and that's called uh, fast flux. And um, again, it's uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but it certainly defeats peer-to-peer uh, -peer and this uh, defeat IP blocking. Okay, thanks, John. That's IP address blocking. Can you talk a bit about domain-based blocking? Domain-based blocking, right? So in 2008, I went to work for a, a software vendor that specifically wrote, um, uh, you know, an application to allow large-scale ISPs to block um, uh, domains. And so, you know, I had this whole system of a reputational of uh, the reputation of a domain. You know, how old is the, the domain? If it's less than a few days old, you probably don't want to resolve that domain. If it's linked to name servers that are hosting other malicious domains at a high percentage, you don't want to resolve that domain. And a number of checks and balances against a domain before you'd actually go ahead and block it. Now, um, you know, that, that can cover millions of domains fairly inexpensively. Uh, it does cover the, the fast flux where they move the IP address around on of the domain because so, you're just going to block the domain it does have some more precision so in that case of amazon where you you block an ip you block a bunch of domains in this case you're going to flip that around and block one domain and even though it resolves to the ip it doesn't really matter because you're only blocking the domain um so and it doesn't have the issues of of ipv6 so you know there's it's a it's more scalable and it does give a bit of broader coverage um it can cause collateral damage on the, you know, on the negative side. It, you know, you've got to again continue to do that validation, verification around, you know, what else is being done with this domain, who owns it, you know, that kind of stuff. But do they have a good anti-abuse policy? Could you, could you much more quickly just send, like, if it was GoDaddy hosting that domain, could you not just send them? A, uh, a notification saying, "Hey, you got a bad domain. Maybe look at who registered it, the IP that's registering that, and they'll, and they'll hit." you know, uh, hundreds of IP, hundreds of domains that were registered by that miscreant and they can, you know, uh, knock out many more legitimately, you know, uh, take out uh, miscreants that are, you know, intentionally registering domains and maybe close loopholes in their registration system or what have you. Now, I, I choose to go to, they have great practices around that. Again, uh, I'm not trying to single out a, a single company. I'm just using that as an example of, you know, types of things that can happen. The only other thing around this is it doesn't cover peer-to-peer. -peer. 
And uh, again, it doesn't cover um, people that use Google DNS or use other over-the-top uh, players like OpenDNS or other DNS vendors. And it, it doesn't cover um, DNS um, changer malware where there's there's uh, variants of malware out there that will change your your DNS um, servers on your PC or change them on your home router. And in that case, um, the game's over. You're, you're going to be using someone else's DNS, and uh, and therefore they can they can become you know man in the middle, or they can do whatever they want with your resol- resolution of the domains that you're trying to access while you're on the internet. So those are the two main forms of blocking. What about Project CleanFeed, which I take it offers a more targeted approach? CleanFeed is kind of, um, without getting into all the details, because there's some some bits of, of CleanFeed that we just don't disclose, um, but it, it is modestly more expensive to deploy and manage. Um, it is precision of a URL. It, uh, it has the limitations of IP blocking, but it also passed what I'll call, um, uh, and I think you write for the Toronto Star, right? So it, it passes the Toronto Star test or the Globe and Mail test, which means that when ISPs deployed CleanFeed, there wasn't anyone complaining, um, and the, the the public backlash uh, on a service like that was minimal. In fact, people were quite happy. And I think that there's some of that with botnet blocking, but as we kind of unpeel the onion, there's differences between those two, meaning that, like, child exploitation sites are a lot, there's a finite number of them, and there's they're, they're more static in nature in a, in a lot of cases. Um and, and, you know, it is illegal content, right? That's, a, you know, that's something you need to think about. Um, uh, it, it also doesn't cover peer-to-peer. It doesn't cover the fast fluxing of uh, domains. It, it doesn't, uh, it's not well understood by smaller ISPs to go off and do this. Um, and so it's kind of a, a point solution that uh, was put in place for, you know, with uh, a lot more than just technology. There was more public policy work that we did when this went into play, um, you know, uh, then there was technology deployment. Um, and, it, and, it, and it all surrounded a lot of what I already covered around, you know, illegal content. Um, assume that, the, that it's unintentional access. Um, precision blocking, small number uh, of, of, of blocks. Um, and, and only to do, to, uh, to work closely with folks like CyberTip um, so that they can, they can uh, supply a list like that and vet it and be the ombudsman, you know, and do the adjudication of that. Um, you need those pieces of the puzzle for this solution to work. Botnets, they're so dynamic in nature and they're purpose built to change and to evade. Um, they, whereas a, a website like, like content, like uh, copyright, very static type of content, uh, a lot easier from a technology perspective, uh, to, to block. But then when you look at the public, you know, public perception of that, um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm more of a technologist than I am, you know, um, I guess a politician, but I think that, that there's, there's a different stress test when you look at the two, or in this, in this sense, the three of them: copyright, child exploitation, botnet blocking. As I, as I was listening to, to you describe the challenges, I, I'm hearing at least a couple of things. One, I, I'm hearing that if we're specifically concerned with botnets, as the CRTC is as part of its consultation, some of these kinds of technologies that that they're envisioning from a blocking perspective just aren't up to a, a challenge of something that is 
involved with such continual evolution that it's it's just not it's not up to the task beyond that though what i'm what, what i heard especially when you start thinking about the policy implications of some of these sorts of blocking approaches i'm hearing that there's a lack of transparency oftentimes associated with this we don't know what's being blocked sometimes that's intentional but generally speaking users won't know what's taking place is a bit of a black box so to speak when it comes to some of these blocking activities and that what's needed at a minimum around this is some kind of oversight due process to ensure that what is being blocked is appropriate under the circumstances and we're not kind of just setting up a system where stuff's being blocked, nobody really knows what it necessarily is or why it's being blocked, and there isn't a whole lot of accountability or transparency associated with it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just um, back up a little bit and address the the technology. You know, in two thousand eight, um, you know, IP blocking was defeated. In fact, in in twenty twenty one, I believe, um, or late twenty twenty, IPv six traffic in Canada surpassed IPv four. So that train left the station as well. So. You know, the technologies have been largely defeated. Uh, yes, that you can still get some efficiency. So I don't want to like, you know, say it's it's completely uh, defeated, but it's, you know, you're, you, the efficiencies you're going to get are slim. Um, and to put something in, particularly to regulate where no other country is regulating in this space, that's at least in the G7 there, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of them have come up with these voluntary codes. I guess my... My opinion is, you know, we've got the um, the CCTX, so CCTX.ca is the Canadian Cyber Threat Exchange, um, was formed in 2015, um, has all the banks, has all the all the telco, a lot of the telcos, has government involved, and they're a, they're a clearinghouse for this type of data, right? So if the CRTC were to, um, you know, uh, create a voluntary uh, practice. Uh, I think you should try volunteering in, in, in anything that you, you're, you're going to pursue. You know, you should at least take a look at what Industry Canada has got in as a voluntary practice and certainly look at what CCTX has done. And I would suggest that they should work with CCTX um, because that way the information the CRTC could share around botnets that are active could be, you know, given to companies like TD Bank. You know, TD Bank, I think, has more U.S. branches than they do in Canada. So they'd be very interested in, in you know, malicious IPs, domains. Uh, so they couldn't just have, you know, Canadian coverage, but maybe their worldwide coverage. Uh, that's just an example. Or, you know, other banks that are involved. They've got assets that are worldwide. Why wouldn't we want them to uh, block things on their own firewalls in other countries? So get the information, okay? Get the, you know, the... Um, the you know IPs domains the techniques um, and and practices of of the miscreants get that information over to in a, in a secure way in a trusted way over to CCTX um, so it can be broadly shared number one and number two make it clear for the for the telcos that hey we'd like you to uh, go ahead just like they did with uh, telemarketing uh, recently they you know made it clear that it's okay to go ahead and block you know. Um, malicious calls to Canadians, right? Um, and lo and behold, TELUS has call control out there, right? And it works really well. I'm a subscriber. It, it, it's great. Um, I think that those types of, you know, activities will go a lot further 
in, in joining the conversation versus creating an entirely new conversation around regulation. That's my opinion on that one. Okay, so we, we, when you're thinking, as, as we wrap this up, when you're thinking about where we should be going, we've got a regulator that, that the regulators regulate and is obviously putting more regulation on the table. And from what I'm hearing, you're suggesting that regulate, regulatory approaches in a, in a marketplace or at least in an environment where for the last couple of decades, industry has been working actively with government to find solutions in the interests of everyone without that kind of regulatory layer ought to be the preferred approach and that looking to blocking type solutions, um, both runs risks of outdated technology relative to some of the current threats, but also brings with it some significant potential harms that, that can come when you start looking to blocking as a proposed solution. That's exactly it, Michael. You've, you've, you've wrapped it up perfectly. Um, you know, I think uh, you could, I couldn't say it any better than you just did. It's, it's really around you know, uh, the same things that we, we did in the 90s, in the early 2000s, right? Working, getting people together, getting them to the table or the virtual or to the Zoom call um, and, and working through this stuff and trying to get uh, not just that, you know, my, my fear, to be honest with you, uh, is that, you know, Canadians get a false sense of security um, that, hey, the telecoms are off blocking, you know, a handful of domains that have changed already and some IPs that are already on IPv6. So there's no real protection at all. And, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're, they, all of a sudden the, the onus and the liability falls into the telco when, in fact, we've taken and we've got a track record of doing this, taken a very broad based approach. You know, um, there's many tools in the tool bag that need to be applied Uh You've got your public policy piece, you've got technology, you've got consumer education, you've got, you know, awareness, you've got, you know, um, social media, right? I mean, they, they should be playing a part in this as well. And, and I know they do. Uh, they have their own threat exchange. Facebook has a threat exchange. They, saw, they share all kinds of great information around malicious activity. Um, you know, so I think there's a broader conversation. If you really want to create a a multi-pronged approach. I think that that's a conversation that uh, the telcos, the banks, I think they'd all be very interested in having uh, versus a, you know, a, a point solution that, you know, was, was outdated about 13 years ago. All right. Well, you said I couldn't put it any better, but I think you just did. Uh, John, <laughs> Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. My, my, uh, my pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.